Hey guys, how's it going? Thanks for tuning in to the YFYI podcast. On this episode you're about to listen to, we've got another live story time where we're going to continue our study of the great McDonald's Corporation. We're getting into Ray Kroc's early days as he began his journey with McDonald's and getting that first store up and running. And he had some definite trials and tribulations. I think you'll find uh, pretty entertaining uh, to just think about where he started. So that's what this episode's about. Those beginning days, that very first store back in 1955 in the beginning of what would become what we know as today, the global brand McDonald's. So thanks for tuning in. Enjoy the episode. All right. Good morning. Good morning. How is everybody doing over there, out there, wherever there is? All right. Good morning. It's time, it's time, it's time. It's 9 a.m. on the East Coast. Good morning. Thanks for tuning in wherever you're tuning in from. This is your host, your host with the most, Sunny D. I'm here. I'm ready to go. Got all of our streams going. Got our Instagram stream going. Got our Facebook streams going. Our Facebook pages, pages one, pages two, pages three, all the different uh, pages are alive. If you're on Twitter, thanks for being here. Thanks for tuning in on Twitter. Just doing a little adjustment on my microphone here. If you're listening in on the podcast, thanks for tuning in on the pod, the YFYI podcast that is. Thanks for being here, guys. Excited to be back with you for another episode of Storytime. Uh, we're going to have some fun today. This week we've been studying the McDonald's Corporation, and I've been reading from the book Grinding It Out. Grinding It Out, The Making of McDonald's by Ray Kroc. Ray Kroc is uh, touted really as the founder of McDonald's. Uh, we've been learning a lot about that scenario. We learn, you know, learning that there are actually people with the name McDonald's, the McDonald's brothers, which were the originators of the restaurant. But then it was Ray Kroc, the visionary that he was, that really had the, the sight, the foresight, the insight, um, the sight that, you know, this could be bigger than just one hamburger stand over here in uh, San Bernardino, California. He saw it being a global, a at least a nationwide chain, we know that. Um, but really, he saw it being like a global phenomenon. But that took a little convincing. The McDonald's brothers weren't trying to come up off the the chain that easy. I mean, but they were happy. You have to think about where they were. You know, they had the American dream achieved. They had, you know, a beautiful house. They were in their neighborhood. They had a small business and their house on the hill. They could look down, see the restaurant. They had achieved the American dream. They had made it and they were satisfied. And Ray Kroc, at the time that he met the McDonald's brothers, I mean, he was 52 years old and he still was hungry, you know, and I think that's what, really what it comes down to um, is you're thinking about, you know, how hungry are you? Are you hungry enough to keep going? Are you hungry enough to never quit? 
Are you hungry enough to, if you get knocked down nine times, you get up 10? Not everybody has that. I think there is hunger inside of us, but not everybody maybe has that kind of hunger to that level. Um, but Ray Kroc is definitely an outlier when it comes to that. Because if you think about when he started with the McDonald's brothers being 52 years old, and then you know taking that not as his, his uh, last at bat, but that was like another first at bat. Um, so I'm excited to continue the story today on the great company, the McDonald's Corporation, you know, that got started. And really, it, it got started in 1940, but when Ray Kroc got in the picture, it was into the 50s. So if you look them up, if you look up information, you'll see it will say like 1955, like but really it was 1940 when the McDonald's brothers were going. So they had been perfecting the McDonald's system for over 10 years when Ray Kroc came on the scene and um, taking it to a whole nother level. So story time, you know, we started this little journey since we've been in their little Corona quarantine, which we're coming out of, super excited about that. Our salons are opening today. As soon as I finish up with you guys, I'm heading to the salons. We've got a few salons here in Florida. I'll be making my rounds. We're going live in all locations. Our Texas salon is opening today. Uh, we're just excited to get started. We're excited to get back to doing what we do, you know, and, and creating great guest experiences in all of our salons. So that's going on. Um, so I'm excited about that. But we got story time right now. And this was a project I had thought about for years and finally pulled the trigger uh, where I was coming to you for the first, you know, 24 episodes. I got two different books I was reading from. And these were my books, the YFY series. The first book, your first year in the beauty industry, and then the second book, your first year in salon ownership. So I read through both of those books and I was like, well, now what? Now what are we going to do? So I decided, you know, we're going to keep the party going. And I've started going through my library and pulling out um, different, you know, iconic brands and great companies with great stories. And I'm starting to share these stories with you. So last week we covered the Ritz-Carlton and this week we're going through the McDonald's corporation and I'm not getting any kickback I'm not getting a large fry or a free happy meal for doing this I'm not getting a free night stay at the Ritz Carlton um, but what I am getting is my passion of sharing and educating and and um, synthesizing different material and just sharing my point of view on these stories as I'm reading from some of these great authors so this book grinding it out was written a long time ago uh, my copy here, it's, it's an old crusty, crusty copy. You can still find this though um, in hard copies. I think, uh, maybe not, maybe just paperback. Um, but definitely you can find audio versions of it if you want to listen to it on the go. But just a great story and, and a great, a great, great, great tale. So we're going to pick back up with Ray um, where we left off. You know, he was getting married. You know, young, young Ray Kroc getting married to his uh, to his girlfriend and dropping out of school, trying to get into the military and do his thing, underage, um, but wanting to just get involved and and really figuring out, you know, his his uh, parents took him. They all moved to New York and he wanted to get back to Chicago no matter what. And then they end up going back to Chicago. Um, so we're gonna pick up back with the story and I'll share some of my insights as I'm going through. I'll share some of my notes, some of my hot takes um, as we're reading this chapter. So off we go. So a phenomenon of the early 20s 
that has passed into the folklore of great American frauds was the sale of underwater real estate in Florida. The men who sold those lots were made out to be the slickest con artists in the country. The stories of how they took gullible tourists into the swamps and separated them from their money in exchange for deeds to property that only an alligator could love made lively reading in New York and Chicago newspapers. But the whole business was blown way out of proportion, and many honest salesmen were maligned in the process. I ought to know, because I was one of the best of them. I went to Florida because the paper cup business was a bear. It went into hibernation in the winter, and a salesman had to live off whatever layers of fat he'd managed to build up in the summer. Of course, in those first years, that wasn't much for me. Paper cups were not an easy sale. When I hit the streets with my lily cup sample case in 1922, the immigrant restaurant owners I approached with my sales pitch shook their heads and said, No, nah, I have glasses. They cost me chipper. My main sales were to soda fountains. Washing glasses was a real pain in the elbow for them. If they had hot water hot enough to sterilize the glasses, it would create a cloud of steam coming out of their soda fountain. Paper cups got around that problem. They were more hygienic and they eliminated breakage and losses through on return eliminated breakage and losses through on return takeout orders. Those elements became the principal points in my sales story. I was green as grass but I sensed that the potential for paper cups was great and that I would do well if I could overcome the inertia of tradition. It wasn't easy. I pounded the pavement in my territory for early, from early morning until 5 or 5.30 in the afternoon. I would have worked longer, I suppose, but I had another job waiting for me at 6 o'clock, playing piano at radio station WGES in Oak Park. The studio was in the Oak Park Arms Hotel, just a couple of blocks away from the building where Ethel and I had moved into a second floor flat. I teamed up with Harry Sosnick, the regular staff pianist, and we became known as the Piano Twins to listeners who tuned in to hear us through their earphones. We were gaining in popularity with our pictures beginning to appear on the covers of sheet music when Harry left to become the pianist with the well-known Zee's Confre Orchestra. He was featured in a highly successful Confre composition, Kitten on the Keys. Later, Harry formed his own orchestra and did well. He became a fixture on the hit parade show on radio. I was promoted to staff pianist at WGES, and this made my double workday complete. I had to arrive at the station promptly at 6 p.m and play for two hours. I was off from 8 to 10 p.m. 8 to 10 p.m. and then I returned to work until 2 o'clock in the morning. A few hours later, 7 or 7.15 a.m., I'd be off with my sample case in pursuit of paper cup orders. You know, so as you're, you know, hearing about this and you're hearing, you know, just some of the, the pace and the rhythm you know, one a couple of things that I took away from listening to this part of the story was like this guy is, you know, he's working, right? He's putting in some serious hours. 
you know, I get people a lot of times they'll reach out to me and they'll, you know, they'll say, you know, I'm doing this and I'm doing that and I'm, I'm working so hard and I just feel like it's like it's not paying off. I don't I don't know. I don't know what gives, what gives, what gives. And I'm like, well, how long have you been doing it for? Well, I've been doing it for like two months. And I'm like, two months, two months. Are you serious? Are you serious? You know, and, and you it doesn't matter. Like you're trying to build a YouTube channel. You're trying to build your Instagram following. You're trying to, you know, tell your story. You're trying to build your podcast. I mean, I think we're creeping up on 190 episodes of my podcast. And it it's not like, it hasn't blown up. I mean, I, I don't have like a, you know, a top 100, top 200, top 300 podcast yet. And I've been grinding at this for like a few years. And so like talk to me, you know, in five years. And so when you when you hear about this, and that's the big thing, like at 52, he meets the McDonald's brothers and kind of finally something breaks. So I don't want you thinking like it's going to happen quick. Now, for, for some people, are there those like anomalies that blow up one video, one post, one YouTube uh, video, one um, you know, yeah, there always will be a few, but those are so rare, right? Those are, you know, what we call unicorns. They're rare. They exist. We don't know. Have you seen one? No. Have you seen one? Um, but just keep in mind, like he's grinding. He's working almost around the clock, 24 hours a day. And this is just him getting started. And this is 30 years before he meets the McDonald's brothers. So as you're thinking like your thing, whatever your thing is, you're going to need to work at it consistently. And it's going to probably nine out of 10 times not pan out, but that's okay because the 10th time might be the time that it pans out. And a lot of people stop at seven, stop at eight, stop at nine, you know, stop at six. Stop at five, stop at four. Some people will try something two times and just give up if they don't get it. Um, but know that most of the time, a lot of the times things don't work out, you know, and especially the first time, second time, third time, because it's a process. There, there wouldn't be a word process if it wasn't a process. It's a learning process. There's a learning curve. There's a lot that we all have to learn and we don't learn it by swinging the bat once. You're going to have to swing it again and again and again and again. So when you hear the work ethic and, you know, in this part of the story where he's working around the clock, just know that um, a big part of that work ethic, you know, is ingrained and it's over 30 years that it's ingrained. It's not over, you know, just a few, um, you know, a few tries or a few moments. So he's working He's working hard, you know, around the clock, trying to make things happen, selling paper cups. You know, and he bounces around from business to business to business. And we're going to we're going to jump ahead a little bit here in the story. Um, but he bounces around from business to business to business. I mean, he's doing that for years. I mean, it's not like he's doing that, you know, just for, you know, a few years and then he's going to see what happens. He's doing it for years and years and years. Um, trying to figure out what he can make really start to to work to be successful you know thinking about what he can get done what he can you know it's not a 
you know, it's, it's, he hasn't hit it yet, right? So he's trying different things. And for a lot of us, especially when you're just getting started, 100%, try different things. You know, you have to. You have to try different things to try to figure out, you know, what works. Try to figure out uh, what you like. Try to figure out what you're good at. Try to figure all of these different things out. There's going to be a lot of figuring out um, before you might strike whatever, you know, gold looks like for you. Um, so we're going to jump forward here. Um, now we're bouncing, you know, we're going to bounce a few years out. Now we're getting into the, this is the, in the early 1930s. So in the early 1930s, and we're creeping up on, remember when he meets the McDonald's brothers. So in the early 1930s in Southern California, there developed a remarkable phenomenon in the food service business. It was the drive-in restaurant, a product of the Great Depression's crimp on the freewheeling lifestyle that had grown up around movie-happy Hollywood. Drive-ins sprouted in city parking lots and spread along highways and canyon drives. Barbecue beef, pork, and chicken were the typical menus mainstays. But there was an endless variety in service approaches as feverish operators hustled to outdo one another. Aspiring starlets worked as car hops, glad of an opportunity that would help them pay the rent and exhibit their charms at the same time. The drive-in operators cooperated by competing to see who could come up with the most exciting car hop costume. One of them had his girls zooming around his parking lot on roller skates. Into that strange scene came my future mentors in the hamburger business, the McDonald brothers. Maurice and Richard, a pair of transplanted New Englanders, Maurice had moved out to California in about 1926 and got a job handling props in one of the movie studios. Richard joined him after he was graduated from West High School in Manchester, New Hampshire in 1927. Mac and Dick worked together in the studio, moving scenery, setting up lights, driving trucks, and so forth until 1932, when they decided to go into business for themselves. They bought a rundown movie theater in Glendora. It provided a very sparse living, and Mac and Dick perfected the art of squeezing the bejesus out of every penny. They sometimes ate only one meal a day, and often that was a hot dog from a stand near their theater. Dick McDonald recalls that watching the owner of that hot dog stand, who had one of the few places in town that seemed to be doing any business, was probably what gave him and his brother the idea of going into the restaurant field. In 1937, they talked the owner of a lot in Arcadia near the Santa Anita racetrack into putting up a small drive-in building for them. They knew nothing about food service, but they had a man who was experienced as a barbecue cook and he showed them the ropes. Obviously, they picked it up pretty fast. Two years later, they were scouting around the railroad town of San Bernardino looking for a location for a bigger barbecue operation. A fellow named S.E. Bagley from the Bank of America got them started with a $5,000 loan. The San Bernardino restaurant was a typical drive-in. It developed a terrific business, especially among teenagers. But after World War II, the brothers realized they were running hard just to stay in one place. 
They weren't building volume enough, though their parking lot was always full. So they did a courageous thing. They closed that successful restaurant in 1948 and reopened it a short time later with a radically different kind of operation. It was a restaurant stripped down to the minimum in service and menu, the prototype for legions of fast food units that later would spread across the land. Hamburgers, fries, and beverages were prepared on an assembly line basis, and to the amazement of everyone, Mac and Dick included the thing included. The thing worked. So we talked about this um, in, I forget, a few episodes back where it's like switching it up. So they stayed in the industry, right? But they started to make a little pivot. And a lot of times in business, we got to make a pivot. We have to figure out, okay, this isn't working. I need to pivot. If this isn't working, I could maybe pivot again. So they still want to be in the food business, but they're looking at this. You know, their concept now, it's they've got hamburgers, fries, and beverages. Hamburgers, fries, and beverages on an assembly line basis. And so that's what they're going to go with versus the barbecue. Well, let's find out why. Of course, the simplicity of the procedure allowed the McDonald's to concentrate on quality in every step. And that was like, and that was the trick. When I saw it working that day in 1954, I felt like some latter-day Newton who just had an Idaho potato caromed off his skull. So I asked Dick McDonald when he wondered aloud who they'd get to open a lot of similar restaurants for them, what about me? The response seemed to surprise him and his brother momentarily. But then they brightened and began discussing this proposal with increasing enthusiasm. Before long, we decided to get their lawyer involved and draw up an agreement. In the course of this conversation, I learned that the brothers had licensed 10 other drive-ins, including two in Arizona. I had no interest in those, but I would have rights to franchise copies of their operations everywhere else in the United States. The buildings would have to be exactly like the new one their architect had drawn up with the golden arches. The name McDonald's would be on all of them, of course, and I was 100% in favor of that. I had a feeling that it would be one of those promotable names that would catch the public fancy. I was for the contractual clauses that obligated me to follow their plans down to the last detail, too, even the signs and menus. But I should have been more cautious there. The agreement was that I could not deviate from their plans and my units unless the changes were spelled out in writing, signed by both brothers, and sent to me by registered mail. This seemingly innocuous requirement created massive problems for me. There's an old saying that a man who represents himself has a fool for a lawyer, and it certainly applied in this instance. I was just carried away by the thought of McDonald's drive-ins proliferating like rabbits with eight multi-mixers in each one. Also, I was swayed by the affable openness of the McDonald brothers. The meeting was extremely cordial. I trusted them from the outset. That trust later would turn to bristling suspicion, but I had no inkling of that eventuality. So he's going into business with the McDonald's brothers thinking, 
you know, this is going to be, I mean, it's obviously you don't go into business to fail, right? So he's going to business thinking one thing, this is going to be a duplicatable process. I'm going to be able to have these restaurants start spreading them all over the United States. Um, having multi-mixers, right? Because he was a multi-mixer, you know, milkshake machine salesman. Um, having multi-mixers in each one, you know, if he has eight multi-mixers in one location. So he's doing the numbers and the vision, you know, in his head thinking about this. And so they're writing up the agreement and they're ready to get going. So the agreement gave me 1.9% of the gross sales from the franchisees. I had proposed 2%. The McDonald's said, no, no, no. If you tell a franchisee you are going to take 2%, he'll balk. It sounds too full and rounded. Make it 1 and 9 tenths, and it sounds like a lot less. So I humored them on that one. The brothers were to get 0.5% out of my 1.9%. This seemed fair enough, and it was. If they had played their cards right, that 0.5% would have made them unbelievably wealthy. But as my grandpa Fossey used to say, there's many a slip twixt the cup and the lip. Another aspect of the agreement was that I was to charge a franchise fee of $950 for each license. This was to cover my expenses in finding a suitable location and a landlord who would be willing to build to our specifications. Each license was to run for 20 years. My contract with the McDonald's was only for 10 years. That was later amended to 99 years. I've often been asked why I didn't simply copy the McDonald's brothers plan. They showed me the whole thing and it would have been an easy matter seemingly to pattern a restaurant after theirs. Truthfully, the idea never crossed my mind. I saw it through the eyes of a salesman. Here was a complete package, and I could get out and talk up a storm about it. Remember, I was thinking more about prospective multi-mixer sales than hamburgers at that point. Besides, the brothers did have some equipment that couldn't be readily copied. They had a specially fabricated aluminum griddle for one thing, and the setup of all the rest of the equipment was in a very precise step-saving pattern. Then there was the name. I had a strong intuitive sense that the name McDonald's was exactly right. I couldn't have taken the name. But for the rest of it, I guess the real answer is that I was so naive or so honest that it never occurred to me that I could have taken their idea and copy it and not pay them a red cent. I was elated with the deal I'd struck and I wanted to tell someone about it right away. So I dropped in to visit Marshall Reed, my former secretary at Lily Tulip Cup. Marsh had served in the army during World War II. He went back to selling paper cups for a time after the war, but then he married a wealthy widow and retired to California. He was glad to see me as always and we had an interesting talk about my new venture. Since I was committed to it, he didn't tell me what, I, what was really on his mind until years later. I thought you'd gone soft in the head. <laughs> was this a symptom of the male menopause? I asked myself, 
What is the president of Prince Castle Sales doing running a 15 cent hamburger stand? Good old Marsh. He'd never step on another man's happiness. Others were less kind. Ethel was incensed by the whole thing. We had no obligations that would be jeopardized by it. Our daughter, Marilyn, was married and no longer dependent on us. But that didn't matter to Ethel. She just didn't want to hear about the McDonald, McDonald's or my plans. So, what's going on here? Right, you ever um, have an idea, you ever have a, a vision or a dream that you want to do or something that you want to achieve and you share it with somebody and you share it with the family, share it with a friend and they, you know, they shit on it or they're like, uh, yeah, that's not going to work or they, um, you know, you, you're expecting, right, you're so enthusiastic, you're ready to, you know, share this thing and you're like, you're super pumped to tell them about it and they don't share the same enthusiasm. Well, that's what, you know, Ray was faced with. He was faced with it by not only his um, his wife, right, his, who he's been with forever. Remember, they got married. They were, you know, teenagers. Um, they got married. They've got, you know, they had kids. They had this whole family. So they've been together like 30 years. Um, so, of course, that's going to be like the first person he's going to tell. One of the first people that he tells, hey, I got this deal. I just struck. Going to open up these hamburger stands. And now here's the thing, he's going from, you know, he was successful in the, you know, the paper cup business early on, then he gets into the, uh, the multi-mixer business. So he's like a salesman, you know, of different products. And all of a sudden now he's making this pivot and he's coming into the restaurant world, which I mean, he really knows nothing about. I mean, he's eaten at restaurants. He's been at, he's been to restaurants. But what does he know about the restaurant world? So sometimes that'll happen. You know, you'll have this idea and you'll bring that idea to a family member. You'll bring it to a friend. You'll bring it to somebody. You'll present it and people will look at you and they'll be like, that's kind of crazy. Like you, they could have told that to Ray. They could have said, Ray, listen, you sell milkshake mixers, the multi-mixers. That's what you do. You're a salesman. You sold paper cups. You sold knives. You sold this. You sold that. That's what you do. You're not a restaurateur. You're, you don't know anything about the restaurant business. Why on earth do you want to go into the restaurant business? Like, what's that all about? And that's what they could have said. And that's what a lot of people did say. And I mean, think about it. They didn't, they weren't able to connect the dots. But that's the thing sometimes when you have something going on in your head and you're thinking about you know, doing something or taking a shot, taking a swing, um, not everybody might have the same enthusiasm as you do. Not everybody might have the same uh, excitement. Um, but will you let that deter you? A lot of people will. A lot of people, that'll happen and they'll let that deter them and throw them off their path. So he brings it to his wife. She's like, I don't want to hear about it. Um, she's like not not trying to hear about it. So we had no obligations, right? So his daughter Marilyn's married. They have no more dependents. Um, they're like ready to go, but that didn't matter because Ethel she didn't want to hear about the McDonald's or my plans. I had done it again, and once too often, as far as she was concerned, the quarrels we'd had when I took over Prince Castle. And then when I'd extended the mortgage on her house to buy out John Clark, 
were mere preludes to this one. This was a veritable Wagnerian opera of strife. It closed the door between us. She dutifully attended McDonald's gatherings in later years, and she was liked by operators, wives, and by women on the staff. But there was nothing more between us. Our 35 years of holy matrimony endured another five in unholy acrimony. That's kind of sad, right? You know, he's with her for 35 years and things at that point. You know, the McDonald's thing is like the new thing that he's on, the hot take, and she's kind of over it, right? She's seen all these different things that had brought them to their financial needs, knees and crashed and burned and watched and this and he's trying that, he's trying this, and now he's 52 years old. Now he's, now he's going to do a hamburger store. Great. So she just kind of was over it and he kind of probably felt that and was like, all right, and so their marriage is kind of over at that point. Back to the story. So I had no time to bother with emotional stress though. I had to find a site for my first McDonald's store and start building. I needed to get a location that I could establish as a model for others to follow. My plan was to oversee it in my spare time from the Prince Castle business. That meant it would have to be situated near my house or near my office and downtown Chicago was impossible for a number of reasons. Finally, with the help of a friend named Art Jacobs, who went in 50-50 with me on it, I found a lot that seemed just right. It was in Des Plaines, a seven-minute drive from my home and a short walk from the Northwestern Railroad Station from where I could commute to the city. My trouble started the minute I got together with my contractor and went over with him the plans furnished by the McDonald's architect. That structure was designed for a semi-desert location. It was on a slab, no basement, and it had a swamp cooler on the roof. Where am I going to put the furnace, Mr. Croc? he asked. Damned if I know, what do you suggest? He suggested a basement, pointing out that other arrangements would be far less efficient and that I would need a basement for storage anyhow. I couldn't just leave my potatoes outdoors as the McDonald's did, for example, and there was no room for a back building on this lot, even if I wanted one, which I didn't. So I called the McDonald's boys and told them about my problem. Well, sure, you need a basement, they said, so build one. I reminded them that I had to have it documented by a registered letter. They poo-pooed it, and said it was all right to go ahead. They weren't much good at writing letters and they couldn't afford to hire a secretary. Actually, they probably could have hired the entire typing pool at IBM if they'd had a mind to. I hung up hoping that they would have second thoughts and send me written confirmation, but they never did. It was a messy way to start. Being in default on the first unit, but there was no choice. I went ahead with the building, telling myself that when I got breathing space, I would fly out to see the McDonald's and get all the contractual wrinkles ironed out at once. That would have worked had the McDonald's been reasonable men. Instead, they were obtuse. They were utterly indifferent to the fact that I was putting every cent I had 
and all I could borrow into this project. When we sat down with our lawyers in attendance, the brothers acknowledged the problems but refused to write a single letter that would permit me to make changes. We have told you by telephone that you may go ahead and alter the plans as we discuss, said their attorney, Frank Cotter, but the contract calls for a registered letter. If Mr. Crock does not have that, he is put in jeopardy, said my counsel. That's your problem. It was almost as though they were hoping I would fail. This was a peculiar attitude for them to take because the more successful the franchising, the more money they would make. My attorney gave up on the situation. I hired another and he quit too, saying I was plain crazy to continue under such conditions. He could not protect me if the McDonald's should close in on me. So I said, let him try, and I plunged ahead. My home in Arlington Heights was right next to the Rolling Green Country Club where I belonged and where I had a lot of business friends and golfing companions. Most of these locker room acquaintances shared the general opinion that I had taken leave of my senses in getting into this 15 cent hamburger business. <laughs> so there he is. He's at his, he's at his local hangout. You know, he's at his, his, uh, his local country club. He's a member there. And he's, you know, talking to the guys. And he's like, yeah, you know, he's excited. I'm getting into the hamburger business, right? And they think he's crazy. Uh, but I had one close friend who was quite interested in the venture. He had a son-in-law named Ed MacLukey, who was looking for a job and who had expressed a liking for the food service business. Ed was working a wholesale hardware territory over in Michigan at the time and it wasn't going well. So I talked to him. He was one of those whip lean nervous types who are often very fussy and fastidious and have great endurance. Just the kind of qualifications I was looking for. So I hired him as a manager of my first store. Art Bender, the McDonald Brothers manager, came to Des Plaines and helped Ed and me open that store on April 15th 1955. It was a hell of an ordeal, but the experience was to prove invaluable in opening other stores. Incidentally, Art Bender is still with us. He's a highly successful operator in California. So is Ed, who has stores in Michigan and Florida. My notion about using that first unit as an experimental model was a good one. It took nearly a year to shake it down into a smooth running operation, although it made money from the start. I probably wouldn't have been able to get the thing started if it hadn't been for Jim Schindler of Leitner Equipment Company. He went out to San Bernardino and studied the layout of the griddles, fry vats, and so forth in the McDonald's Brothers store. Then he adapted them to my plans in Des Plaines. One of the things I did differently was to make my milkshakes with a soft product drawn from a tank instead of hand dipping ice cream. This changed the layout and gave us more space. One major problem in adapting the California style building to the Midwestern climate was ventilation. I brought in architectural consultants one after another in an attempt to solve the problem of exhausting the stale air and replacing it with fresh, cool, or heated air. These guys could design a cathedral, but they didn't seem to be able to deal with my little hamburger store. 
it gets pretty cold in April in the Chicago area. So our furnace was put into action right away. The problem was that the fans for the griddle and fry vats would exhaust all the heat the furnace was putting out and continually blow out the pilot light. This could have allowed gas to accumulate dangerously. The temperature inside the store would hover around 40 degrees. As the weather warmed up, the reverse happened. Cool air was exhausted, allowing the inside temperature to climb up to around 100 degrees. A subject of much greater concern to me, however, was the great French fry flop. I had explained to Ed McLukey with great pride the McDonald's secret for making french fries. I showed him how to peel the potatoes, leaving just a bit of the skin to add flavor. Then I cut them into shoestring strips and dumped them into a sink of cold water. The ritual captivated me. I rolled my sleeves to the elbows and after scrubbing down in proper hospital fashion, I immersed my arms and gently stirred the potatoes until the water went white with starch. Then I rinsed them thoroughly and put them into a basket for deep frying in fresh oil. The result was a perfectly fine looking golden brown potato that snuggled up against the palate with a taste like, well, like mush. I was aghast. What the hell could I have done wrong? I went back over the steps in my mind trying to determine whether I had left something out. I hadn't. I had memorized the procedure when I watched the McDonald's operation in San Bernardino and I had done it exactly the same way. I went through the whole thing once more. The result was the same, bland, mushy french fries. They were as good, actually, as the french fries you could buy at other places. But that was not what I wanted. They were not the wonderful french fries I had discovered in California. I got on the telephone and talked it over with McDonald's brothers. They couldn't figure it out either. This was a tremendously frustrating situation. My whole idea depending on, depended on carrying out the McDonald's standard of taste and quality in hundreds of stores, and here I couldn't even do it in the first one. I contacted the experts at the Potato and Onion Association and explained my problem to them. They were baffled too at first, but then one of their laboratory men asked me to describe the McDonald's San Bernardino procedure step by step from the time they bought the potatoes from the grower up in Idaho. I detailed it all and when I got to the point where they stored them in the, sh in the shaded chicken wire bins he said that's it. He went on to explain that when potatoes are dug they are mostly water. They improve in taste as they dry out and the sugars change the starch. The McDonald's brothers had without knowing it a natural curing process in their open bins which allowed the desert breeze to blow over the potatoes. With the help of the potato people I devised a curing system of my own. I had the potatoes stored in the basement so that the older ones would always be next in line for the kitchen. I always put a, a big electric fan down there and gave the spuds a continuous blast of air which greatly amused Ed McLukey. 
We have the world's most pampered potatoes, he said. I almost feel guilty about cooking them. That's all right, Ed. We're going to treat them even better. We're going to fry them twice, I told him. I explained the blanching process the potato people had recommended we try. We gave each basket of fries a preliminary dip in the hot oil and let them drip dry and cool off before cooking them all the way through. Finally, about three months after we'd opened the store, we had potatoes that measured up to my expectations. They were, if anything, a little better than those tasty morsels I discovered in San Bernardino. We worked it out so the blanching was done on a regular production line basis. We'd have two baskets at a time and blanch them for three minutes. They would be a rather unappealing gray color when they came out at that point, but the cooling and draining would allow some oil to penetrate into the body of the potato. The chemistry of this, the chemistry of this tinge of oil in the starch of the morsel when it was dumped back to fry for another full minute created a marvelous taste. I gotta try this. I gotta try this process. <laughs> They'd emerge for the second time, golden, glowing, and appealing. We would dump them into a stainless steel drain pan under a few heat lamps and let the grease drain off. Then they would be placed with sugar tongs, two or three strips at a time, into the serving bag. That process wouldn't work today. It would be far too costly in labor. Even then, a lot of people marveled that we could sell those potatoes for a dime. A dime! You hear that? A dime for some french fries. A dime for some McDonald's fries. Come on, McDonald's. Bring those dimes back. Now, one of my suppliers told me, Ray, you know you aren't in the hamburger business at all. You're in the french fry business. I don't know how the living hell you do it, but you've got the best french fries in town, and that's what's selling folks on your place. You know? I think you're right, I replied. But you son of a bitch, don't you dare tell anyone about it. I was elated when I finally got that store open and it began to show a profit. I recognized that it was not in the best of all possible locations. At most, it was a mediocre site for a place that had no prior public exposure. Yet it was doing well, and I was able to move ahead and start lining up my franchisees for other locations. The first place I looked for them was the locker room at Rolling Green, and many of my golfing friends became very successful McDonald's operators. So he's now doing a little bit of a um, little bit of networking, right? So starting with his power base. So he's a member of this country club. So that's where he's going to start. He's going to start, you know, with his power base. He's got that first restaurant figured out. He's got the fries figured out. And now he's ready to start developing uh, partners, start getting people on board. Um, but one of the things that I found real interesting about that was when, you know, I was reading this and I was like, yeah, you know what? That is the truth. Like McDonald's sells more French fries than hamburgers. And one of the big things that they do and in um, part of their training in their system is anybody that ever orders a hamburger, they ask, you know, would you like fries with that? You know, so when you think about your business, like what's the fries to your business? It might be, you know, the fries might be the haircut. 
The fries might be the color depending on what mindset you're in. So if someone's getting a haircut, you know, would you like fries with that? That's some color. If they're getting a color, would you like fries with that? Maybe that's a trim or a haircut. So what's the fries for your business? But that might be the actual business. So that was interesting. And that guy that said that to him really helped him kind of, you know, realize that even though, you know, it's McDonald's, it's a hamburger company, it's a you know burger company, um, but it is truly the fries that were the magic and the secret sauce that, you know, where he was selling more of and that were helping his business become profitable. So let's finish up this, uh, this part of the story. Then the whole deal ground to a halt on another piece of dramatic deviousness or dumbness, I don't really know which, on the part of the McDonald's brothers. I had been made aware of the 10 other sites in California and Arizona that the brothers had lent their names to and we'd agreed that was fine. I was to have all the rest of the United States, but there was one other agreement they hadn't told me about, and that was for Cook County, Illinois, where I had my home, my office, and my first model store. The brothers had sold Cook County to the Fredlack Ice Cream Company interest for $5,000. It cost me $25,000 to buy that area from the Fredlax, and it was blood money. I could not afford it. I was already in debt for all I was worth. I couldn't blame the Fredlax, of course. They were completely above board and fair, but I could never forgive the McDonald's. Unwittingly or not, they had made an ass of me in the biblical sense. I'd been blindfolded by their assurances and led to grind like blind Samson in the prison house. My only salvation was the goodwill I'd built up over the years in Prince Castle sales. The income from Multimixer paid the rent for all salaries while I was slaving away to get McDonald's started. I would drive down to Des Plaines each morning and help get the place ready to open. The janitor would arrive at the same time I did, and if there was nothing else to be done, I'd help him. I've never been too proud to grab a mop and clean up the restrooms, even if I happen to be wearing a good suit, but usually there were a lot of details to be taken care of in terms of ordering supplies and keeping the food operation going. So I'd write out detailed instructions for Ed MacLukey concerning them. Ed came in about 10 o'clock in the morning to open the store at 11 o'clock. I would leave my car at the store and walk the three or four blocks to the Northwestern Station, where I'd catch the 757 Express to Chicago and be in my Prince Castle office before 9 o'clock. June Martino was usually there ahead of me and had the day's business started with our East Coast reps. I had manufacturers representatives all over the country to handle multi-mixer sales. For a time, I kept some of the big customers such as Howard Johnson's, Dairy Queen, and Tasty Freeze as my personal accounts. I relinquished these gradually as McDonald's business demanded more of my time and attention. In the evenings, I would commute back to Des Plaines and walk over to the store. I was always eager to see it. it, had, it see it come into view my McDonald's but sometimes the sight pleased me a lot less than other times sometimes 
And Mac Luke, you would have forgotten to turn the sign on when dust began to fall. And that made me furious. Or maybe the lot would have some litter on it. And on it that Ed said he hadn't had time to pick up. Those little things didn't seem to bother some people, but they were gross affronts to me. I'd get screaming mad and really let Ed have it. He took it in good part. I know he was as concerned about this, these details as I was because he proved it in his own stores in later years. But perfection is very difficult to achieve. And perfection was what I wanted in McDonald's. Everything else was secondary for me. And that finishes up that chapter. So that is, um, it's a pivotal point, right? That's a pivotal point in our story because that is where really, you know, Ray is finding his stride. He's got that first McDonald's store. It's starting to be successful. It's growing. People are coming in. He had that, you know, that big bump in the road trying to figure out the French fry situation. Got it handled. Got the fries tasting great. Making some money. Um, still working though. Think about this. Still working his multi-mixer business, right? Because he had that, you know, all over the country selling these multi-mixers. He's still working that business and that business is actually subsidizing his McDonald's business and the learning curve that he had to go through because even though he had you know, the, the McDonald's system, there still was a lot to learn and a lot to figure out. And even just the climate thing that he had to figure out with the, the potatoes and building the basement because it wasn't California, all those little things you could run into, little hiccups. Um, so, but now he's starting to get his stride going and he's about perfecting this system. He's about getting this ready to roll because now he wants to take this model and basically photocopy, you know, carbon copy it to location, 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 location. And we're going to learn more about that um, in tomorrow's story time and what happens next. Um, so I hope you guys are enjoying this. This is a great story, a lot of fun, um, an adventure for sure. Uh, Ray Kroc, man. You're doing it, my guy. You know, if he's, I mean, he's passed away quite a few years ago, but if he's listening wherever he's at, you know, you're doing it, my guy. Um, so this has been a good, uh, good, good morning. Hopefully a great way to start your day. Uh, grinding it out. The making of McDonald's by Ray Kroc. That's the, the brand we're studying. McDonald's, the company, the great American iconic golden arches. Everybody knows all around the world. Um, starting it out. So we're really getting into the into the depths here. So I'm excited to be back tomorrow for another edition of Storytime. Uh, we'll probably be going at nine. We'll see. I'm gonna take a couple of peeks over the schedule. We may go a little earlier, but we'll have one tomorrow. We're gonna be finishing up um, and kind of getting into the next phase of now, really that foundational period of time where he's gonna get his stride going. So thanks for being here. Thanks for tuning in. Make sure you share this with a friend. Bring some friends back next time you come to Storytime. Don't come alone. Uh, bring some friends back. So wherever you're tuning in, whether you're on Instagram, you're on Facebook pages, you're listening on Twitter, you're listening on the podcast. Thanks for tuning in to Storytime. And we'll see you guys tomorrow. Have a great day, guys. Talk to you soon. Hey guys, Sunny D here again. 
Thanks for listening. Hope you guys enjoy that episode. And I know one of my biggest takeaways from listening to that is uh, really persistence. And it, Ray Kroc, I think, embodied uh, really what the, the essence of persistence is. You know, banging your head up against the wall, uh, running through a wall, climbing a wall, digging a hole under a wall, whatever it takes to get through it, to get beyond that challenge. Uh, that never quit, that never give up attitude. And again, I just I have to remind you guys that he's doing this um, at 52 years old. So just know you can muster up more strength than you you ever even thought than you might think you have right now to keep pushing through and uh, stay persistent, guys. Stay hungry. And I'm excited to be back with another episode tomorrow. Hopefully, if you can, join me for a live story time. I'm live on Instagram, live on Facebook, live broadcasting on Twitter. Um, And then, uh, of course, you'll have the YFY podcast to follow it up. All future current and past episodes, just go to yfyipodcast.com. So thanks again for tuning in to the podcast. And remember, this is the place where you come to learn how to build your business right once, or else you will be doomed to have to build it again. Thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you soon.